I'd like to invite you to, to pray with me as we begin. Father, in a moment we're going to open up your word and as we, as we open it, we want to make sure that, uh, that we come to it with a reverence, with an awe, that it is, is your word preserved through the ages uh, with weight for us this morning. That is not, this is not a book reading club, uh, this is not a blog, this is scripture. Uh, and it's authoritative, so I pray that um, the authority of what's spoken this morning would not be uh, my words, but uh, that what is shared would be an accurate reflection of what your words say. And so we pray that you would speak clearly to us, help us to understand clearly what you have to say to us in this passage, uh, so that our lives are changed by it. And we need your grace for that to happen. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, there's a man, he's a young man. Um, and uh, he loves God. He's, he's not just religious. He's, he, he's very spiritual. He... Uh, he loves the Word of God. He's very devoted to the Word of God. Reads Scripture, learns Scripture, memorizes Scripture, understands it uh, pretty well. He is uh, kind. He's kind to people. He loves his neighbor um, to the best that he can. Worship services, he's there all the time. If there's a worship service, he's there. And he's not just there like attending, like taking up a spot in a seat. He's in service. He's contributing. He's helping. And he gives. He gives financially. He, makes, he doesn't play around with that. He makes sure. He budgets uh, contribution to uh, the work of the Lord. And this isn't just tradition for him. You know, he doesn't just do it because his parents did it. He doesn't just do it because he grew up with it. He does it because he really believes in God. He knows God is there and he wants to worship God. He wants to worship Him. But this man is not going to heaven. This man is not a part of the kingdom. This man is not really a believer. And you know what? He, he kind of knows it. He has a sneaking suspicion. That something is wrong. You know, he, he has all the pieces in place. I, I, I go and I worship with the people of God and I give financially to the people of God. I the Bible and it's like all the do's and the don'ts, check, 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 you know, I do those do's and I, I don't do those don'ts, but he has a sneaking suspicion that things are not okay between him and God. He doesn't have peace. I just uh, <laughs> talked with uh, Al Kruger this morning and I'm reminded of um, He's great with visitations and he's very evangelistic when he visits people. And one of the questions he'll lead out with is, do you have peace with God? And, you know, there's something about the way he asks that, that it kind of opens the door for people to kind of talk Jesus a little bit. Do you have peace with God? This, this guy, um, as religious as he is, understands he's missing something. He's just not sure what it is. 
but he knows, he knows he's missing something. And Jesus tells him why. He has that sneaking suspicion that he's not okay with God. Jesus tells him, you're not okay with God. You're not. And he, then he explains to him why. Um, some of us might be in that camp. Christmas is a season where I think it's, that's especially so, where we do a lot of Christian things. Uh, we speak Christianese, you know, we early, we have our spot. But if there's something off in your heart where you feel like, eh, something's not right, this, this might be a, pa- a passage that blows you away. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus meets this young man. Probably an upstanding man in the community. Probably a guy that most people around him thought, well, if anyone's going to heaven, it's this guy. I mean, he's solid. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? You you see already off the bat, he's questioning this. He's not... He's not exactly sure. He either wants to be confirmed or taught or can you adjust what it is that I'm, where I'm off? He doesn't sense that he has peace with God. So he asks Jesus, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay, Um, Jesus is not saying, well, if you want eternal life, then all you have to do is keep the commandments. You know, keep them. Like you can earn it. In fact, he's trying to get the guy to realize you can't earn it. This is why he gives him that little snide remark almost, where he says, teacher, what good must I do? And he goes, why do you want to talk about what's good? In other words, what do you mean by good? Well, why do you want to unpack good? Because there's only one who's good. There's only one who's actually good. See, you want to talk about what's good enough. I want to talk about what's perfect. Jesus explained that in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he, he told them, you, you need to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. That's why you try to keep your rules, but in your heart you're breaking the rules. You keep the rules externally, but internally you're breaking the rules. You all remember that. The Sermon on the Mount, he's going one at a time. You've heard it said this, but I'm telling you that. And basically destroys religiosity. You hear the echo of that here. You want to talk about what's good? There's only one who is good. There's only one who's perfect. You're not perfect. There's only one who's perfect. Clearly referencing his father and in a sideways way uh, himself. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? And then he changes the verb. Watch this. And the question, the guy said, what good must I do to have eternal life? To get eternal life. To grab it. To attain it. To have it. To own it. And Jesus says, when his answer, he doesn't tell him, here's how you have it. He says, here's how you enter it. I mean, it's subtle. It's subtle. It's a little bit of a turn, but he he doesn't use his verb. He supplies his own verb. Eternal life is not something you achieve or you possess. 
that you can grab and just have. Yes, I have it. Check. There's something you enter into. It's an experience that happens. He says, well, you keep the commandments. All right, so he says to him, which ones? <laughs> you know, his theology's off already. I mean, what do you mean, which ones? <laughs> he knows he can't keep them all. He knows he can't keep them all. This is why people keep asking Jesus about the Gospels, which are the greatest ones? Can we just stick to the greatest ones? And then Jesus said, well, the, the two greatest ones are the ones that sum up everything. In other words, these two greatest ones don't allow you to escape any of these little ones. Because all these are just different variations of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus plays along with them. You know, he's not trying to slam the guy. He wants to bring the guy in. So the guy says, which ones? And keep in mind, he's not trying to trap Jesus. He's not like one of the Pharisees. This guy's not coming to Jesus like a jerk. You know, he, he really wants to know. He, he's on a quest. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Ring a bell. Okay, so he's going down the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. The first tablet is how we relate to God. The second tablet of the Ten Commandments is how we relate to people. In other words, if you really love God, if you've got the first tablet right, then the second tablet is going to be a reality in your life. And to sum all of those things up, at the end of verse 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the young man said to him, all these I have kept. Would you tell Jesus that? Would you stand in front of Jesus and go, yeah, I've done all of those perfectly. Interesting path this guy is on. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? He is hitting a point that's important. He's saying, I'm keeping all of these, but I'm still missing something. And this is his dilemma. I'm very churchy or synagogue for him, right? But I, but I, but I still, there's still something off. I, I don't have what I need to have. Or as you put it, Jesus, I've not entered into what I need to enter into. What am I missing? What do I lack? I've kept the law. I read the commandments. I keep them. What do I lack? And then Jesus gracefully, he doesn't go, you know what, have you kept them perfectly? And then kind of give him like a interrogation on his, on his, you know, on how well he's kept the law. Really? Have you really kept them all? No, he, he doesn't go down that, that road. Instead, he gives him a test. If you can do this one thing, then I'll know for sure that in your heart, you really keep the law. And he, he gives him a little to do some homework jesus said to him if you would be perfect again you're talking about good i'm talking about perfect if you would be perfect go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven in other words it's not like you're going to be poor forever i'm making you a promise if you really think i'm good a good teacher and i'm telling you the truth there will come, come a time when you enter into heaven and you'll be given treasure there. So give up a little bit now, temporally, and then eternally you'll have treasure. Then take all your stuff, throw it up on eBay, give it to the poor with the proceeds that you have, and, and you'll have a promise in heaven. And then 
come follow me. Verse 22 is the response. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. I love, I love how, how Matthew rolls this out for us because, you know, you guys have in your Bibles that little rubric at the top, those little cheat notes. This is what this paragraph is about, you know, the little headings. And scripture doesn't have those headings. That's just to help us, you know, orient ourselves to the text. But as you're reading this, you have no idea this guy's rich until that last line. He's a man that came up. And then he tells us he's young. He's a young man, verse 20. But you don't see that he's rich until verse 22. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew this guy has a lot of stuff. And I bet you all those possessions actually possess him. And I bet you that if I lay this out, like go home and do the simple thing, give all your stuff away, they wouldn't be able to do it. Now, if the guy owned a few things, it's like, wow, that would be tough. I only have a few things, but okay. But he had a lot of things. And he just had a lot of knickknacks. Like he wasn't like a, I don't know, <laughs> like a glass figurine collector, you know? Not to diss anybody who collects glass figurines. But he had great possessions. His possessions were great. They, they made him rich. That's why they were so hard to get rid of. And as badly as he wanted eternal life, as badly as he wanted the kingdom of heaven, he walked away sad. Oh, I don't get that. Because he can't let go of this. So Jesus drew a line in the sand and he knew he wouldn't be able to cross that line. Jesus is not in this passage saying to be a Christian, everybody has to sell everything they have. They're saying to be a Christian, you have to be willing to, and he wasn't willing to. Christ has to be first. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring priests between everybody. I came to bring a sword. That means if your spouse doesn't like it, too bad, you worship me. If your kids don't like it, too bad, you worship me. You don't worship me less because your kids are not going to like it or worship me less because your spouse isn't going to like it. Worship me less with less fervor because it might disrupt your relationship with your parents. You put me first. And in this passage, he understood that the guy wouldn't be able to put him first, not because of family or what people would think or fame, but fortune. Fortune. And then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I see a lot of churches exploding in the inner city. I just see a lot of dead, dying, tiny churches of rich white folks that have turned the church into a country club in the suburbs. It's not just a coincidence that South America and parts of Asia, Africa are the hotbeds for Christianity now. And we're like the next Europe. You know, like Christendom is dying. Affluence. Things, money, stuff, material. 
Jesus said, when you're rich, it'll be difficult for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Case in point, the example he just shows you. Because you can't let go of the stuff that you worship so that you can worship Christ. You can't follow him when you follow your stuff. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of people throughout the years have tried to... That doesn't make any sense. A camel through an eye of a needle. No camel could fit through an eye of a needle. Really, he means the gate called eye of the needle. And I don't know, from what I read, there really is no such thing as that gate. So when we read that, we go, that doesn't make sense. How can a camel fit through an eye of a needle? You're supposed to go, impossible. Not, oh, camel really was the Greek word for thread. And so, no, that would actually, that would make sense. He's trying to put, he's trying to, in an exaggerated way, give you a metaphor of something that is not possible, something that doesn't fit. And someone who is a worshiper of their possessions cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25 has always thrown me for a loop. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Like, the disciples didn't go, yeah, this rich guy, <laughs> what a chump, you know? I mean, just get rid of the stuff. It was easier for them to drop their nets. But instead, they see this happen, and then Jesus says, rich, rich people will have a hard time entering heaven. They go, well, then who will be saved? I don't understand why they're asking that question. So I had to dig a little bit. It seems that most scholars, at least the one that I read, uh, they go back to the Jewish mindset back then. And not unlike a lot of mindset, the mindset in a lot of churches today, where if God blesses you, God, you're in God's favor, God loves you, God, God wants to prosper you, then that'll be shown in your blessings in life. You'll have stuff. You remember when Job had all his stuff taken from him and his three friends, his three wise friends came to him? What did they tell him? Job, repent, man. Obviously, you did something. What is the logic? If you behave the way God wanted you to behave, he would bless you as he has. But if you're not receiving blessing, then obviously you did something to tick off God. So repent. Okay? There are Psalms. There are Proverbs that that talk about God blessing those that He favors and, and those blessings being material. When you go to a prosperity gospel church, they love the Old Testament. They love the Old Testament. And they don't piece it together with other pieces of the Old Testament like Job. They just isolate those singular verses and they make it a simple formula. Worship God, do what He wants you to do. He'll give you material blessings. You'll be rich and healthy in this life. But that, was a, that was a pervasive uh, line of thought for the, Matthew's audience and the Jews of Jesus' day. And the disciples weren't immune to it. That makes sense of this passage. They're going, here's a guy who goes to the synagogue, tithes, keeps the commandments, does what is holy, he doesn't hang out with drunkards, he doesn't sleep around, he's faithful to his wife, he's kind to people, helps the old lady across the street, he worships God on Saturday, and he's not going to make it? Clearly, he's blessed of God. Look at all the things that he has. Those are blessings of God. The psalmist tells us that. 
Proverbs tell us that. The wicked will come to poverty, but the righteous will be blessed. And he's clearly a righteous guy. And he's not going to make it? That's why they're astonished. They're going, oh my goodness, us poor fishermen have no hope if a guy like that who's clearly blessed from God can't make it. So Jesus looked at them. Another translation says Jesus looked at them intently. And said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's how anyone enters eternal life. It's the, the impossible thing that God does. The impossible thing that God can do. You know, so people take this verse and they're like, you know, uh, <laughs> just apply it to whatever. Uh, man, it's really trafficy out. I'm really late, but I'm going to make it on time because it's possible with God. This is about salvation. This is about your family member who's so far from God, you're like, that's impossible. There's no way. There's no way. It's possible with God. Someone could be super rich and have all those temptations, but it's still possible with God. This guy needed God to be able to give up that stuff. He needed Jesus to be able to give up that stuff. He couldn't do it in his own strength. The possibility always lies with God. And so he explains to them, that it is possible. It is possible. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter. A lot of it's stacked against them. The odds are not in their favor, so to speak. But with God, all things are possible. Then there's that teaching moment. Peter gets it. He's like, oh, okay, okay. So we've given up stuff, and God enables you to give up stuff, and we've given up stuff, and we've followed you. We've been able to do what this rich young man isn't able to do. So we're right with you, right? We're okay. But look how he puts the question. Peter says in reply in verse 27, See, we have left everything and followed you. Then what will we have? You know, I heard you say something about treasure in heaven. So like, what do we get? You know, little immature. But Jesus, you know, Jesus graciously goes with it. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So there's a promise that when Jesus calls you to give something up for His sake, you'll be rewarded in heaven. Now, if I wrote the Bible, I may not write it this way, but it's clear in the Bible that when we get to heaven, there's going to be different rewards for different lives that were lived, the different levels of faithfulness. This, this seems to be clear throughout Scripture. And what Jesus is saying is those who are called to give up a lot will get a lot more in heaven. Not all of us will be called to give up lands and give up 
family and give up friends and actually sell all our things. Not all of us are necessarily going to find ourselves in that situation. We hope that we are in the right heart to do it if we're called to do it. But Jesus appends a promise to this. That whatever you give up, whatever you have to deny here, whatever you have to sacrifice here, you will receive in return, exponentially in return in the new world. I think a lot of us, I love that term new world. It's, it's only ever used one, one place else in the New Testament. It's kind of a rare word. I love that it's used here because we think of heaven as this floaty place. When I did the Q&A last week with the kids, I think 80% of the questions were, what's heaven going to be like? Is there going to be grass? Are there going to be animals? Will we wear clothing? These are the questions I'll ask. Okay? A lot of questions about what it's like in heaven. And as I'm answering these questions, I realize that we still have this thinking about heaven like it's, we're floating around in clouds. We all turn into little chubby babies with diapers and we suddenly know how to play the harp. And we float around on clouds all day, shooting arrows at people so they fall in love with each other. I don't know. Man, boring. That is boring. We're just, we're just floating. One of the questions was, are we going to worship forever? So what they're thinking is the worships that we just had, for eternity. John constantly stuck in a cycle of worship sets, you know? Except he'll never run out of battery juice because it's heaven, you know? And just song after song, and then again, and then start that, you know, five million song set, start it again, you know? So I explain to the kids that worship is not just music and song, it's living life. And when you read the Bible, heaven is a temporary holding place, and then God creates a new earth where there's literal lions and literal lambs, but they're, you know, the lion's not eating the lamb. There's something about the food chain has been flattened. And that it's a place without the curse that happened in Genesis. It's a place without sickness and disease, but it's a place. I told somebody once, I think, I think we'll ski in heaven. Are you skiing? Why would we ski? Why wouldn't we ski? Why wouldn't we? Except my knees can handle it. Right? That being the difference. There's nothing wrong with fun or joy. God created ingenuity for us to be able to experience His nature. It's great. And so Jesus says, there's going to be a new world, guys. And the problem is, you guys are so invested in now, you think now is great. Now is not great. Then is great. We're stuck on this. That's why we sell out books with titles like Your Best Life Now. Don't live your best life now. Don't aim for your best life now. Live for your best life later. And so what Jesus is explaining to them is if you are so fixated on what you can have now, you'll miss out on what you can have later. And he tells them, everyone who leaves stuff, there's a promise to receive more. And aside from that, even if you didn't get that, wouldn't the main part of the promise still still be enough? You inherit eternal life. As opposed to eternal death. Eternal separation. You will inherit eternal life if you are so changed, so transformed by Christ that He is your object of worship, not your stuff and not yourself. Your life is about building His kingdom, not about amassing a kingdom unto yourself. 
You remember back in Matthew 6, Jesus explained that. He's telling them, don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all this stuff. You know why you're anxious? Because you're scrambling around. How am I going to have things? And are things, how are things going to comfort me? And am I going to have things? Don't worry about stuff. And right in that same portion of the sermon, he tells people, you can't worship God and money. You can't have two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to serve one and not serve the other, but you can't serve both. You can't love both. And so God is a jealous God. He wants devotion. He wants worship. And He doesn't want you dating around. He doesn't want a mistress on the side. And for many of us, it's stuff. It's things. This last verse in verse 30 He puts it in just a a statement that just is able to stick with you. Many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the point. The point is not, am I going to go sell all my stuff today as soon as church is over? I'm going to jump on Craigslist and post all my stuff. That's not the point. The point is, in in your life, do you constantly seek to put yourself first? Or do you celebrate last? Are you good with last? So that firstness can come later. Um, Many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you remember the last series that we were just in about kingdom community, about the humility that a Christian needs? If you're really a Christian, you have the humility to repent when you need to repent. If you're really a Christian, you'll accept other people's repentance when it's time to forgive. He started that whole series with this whole scene about Becoming like a child. Do you remember that? You have to be humble yourselves like a child. If you do, here's what church will look like. And then he talks about church discipline. He talks about marriage. He talks about forgiveness and repenting. What happens when someone offends you? All of that. Forgiveness and repentance are results of humbling yourself like a child. This series that we're in now about being in last place is just a continuation. It's a part two of that same thought. If you bring your eyes up to verse 13, for me it's on the same page. Matthew 19, verse 13. The verse is just before what we read. We get that introduction again. Matthew wants to remind you, this is the theme. Children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Like, get those kids out of here, right? But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. That's supposed to go ding, reminder of what we read before the last series. That if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you're becoming like a child. Children are, in a sense, models for us in terms of humility. For them, you know, children were last place in society. And children don't have a say, children don't run governments. Children aren't in charge. Maybe in some households, but can work on that. He's saying that like a child is last, like a child is humble. You need to become like that. And you can't be like that if you're controlled by what you own. You can't be like that if you worship stuff. Now you don't worship it like you go home and you put your checkbook on the on the vanity table or whatever you got and, and you just worship it and light a candle incense or something not not us you know not that kind of worship 
He's not saying we actually put folds of money and, and sing songs to it. Let's write a song about how beautiful the money is. He, he doesn't mean worship like that. He just means what's first in your life. Anything could be a God before Yahweh if it's what you devote yourself to. So he's saying if you're, if you're surrounded by possessions, you can't do it. You can't be last. So it's an intentional heart decision to make sure that you are celebrating last place. The danger of possessions is that possessions put you first. The danger of having stuff is that they make your present more valuable to you than your future. The danger with having stuff is that they tend to force you to do what you can to continue building your kingdom rather than building Christ's kingdom. You know, Christmas is a season that is uh, very much about giving, but it's also very much about getting. There's a fine line, you know. Um, Some of us maybe have the temptation to give our gifts and people open it and we love that they love it, but then when we get our gifts, there's that little voice inside sometimes, you know, where it's like, does it match what I gave them? You know, because if I got them something that's $300 and they got me something that's $25, then I'm going to make that note for next year because I'm not going to spend $300 on this person every year and they only give me $25. It's very much about getting. We have to help our kids understand that too, by the way. Christmas is not about, oh, yes, the red bicycle and then look at all the stuff I get. Help them to find the joy in what they can give. Jesus is saying, we have to celebrate being a have-not sometimes or being willing to have less so that someone else can have more. He didn't say go home and burn all your stuff. He said give your stuff to somebody else who doesn't have an ounce of what you have. Be generous. Give it away. Follow me with everything. Don't go home to uh, be distracted with all your stuff. Follow me and give everything up for the sake of the kingdom. And if we're not careful, guys, we can slip into this idolatry. When we think rich people, we think, you know, those huge houses in like, you know, Northbrook or something like that. We're rich. All you got to do is go on a short-term mission trip somewhere to wake you up again, and then you come home and you say, I'm very rich. I mean, the rich people you read about in the Bible have nothing on you. With your iPod and instant satellite access to image of any, anywhere you are, you know, I mean, we just have a lot of stuff. Some of us are distracted right now because we're thinking where we're going to go to lunch and spend money on people that are going to serve us, cook for us the best that they can, you know, wait on us. We're rich. It will be very easy for us to kind of sidestep this passage, the weight of this passage, because we're thinking about this, this, this goes to Donald Trump. No, this goes to me. This goes to you. How loose is your grip on your stuff? And and that's where the application becomes difficult. I think that's a heart search. And the young man was on the right track. He understood there was something in him that was off. And then Jesus showed it to him by exposing that he's a worshiper of his stuff. I think... uh, We need to ask ourselves, what are the things that I cling to the most in this life? Is it my job? Is it what my job can afford? Is it my car? Is it my house? 
What is it? Well, what are the things? Are there things in my life that control me, that kind of dominate my attention? Are there things in my life where if I could really help somebody by giving it to them, I wouldn't because it just means too much to me? I think that's dangerous ground. And only you know what those things are. And maybe those that are closest to you can help you figure that out. But it's a heart decision we need to make. As we celebrate Christmas, let's help our kids and let's help our families understand that this is about giving. It's not about getting. It's not about amassing stuff because stuff will kill you. Right? Let's close in asking the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you that... um, as impossible as it is for us to give up stuff, to worship you instead of the things that are so alluring and the things that are so entangling, God, uh, we are so thankful that it is possible with you, that it is possible by grace, that it is possible by your mercy. And so we have uh, salvation in you and that while we're not able to be perfectly good, uh, your son Jesus is perfectly good. And through our faith, his righteousness is credited to our account. That is amazing. And we thank you that uh, we have that promise in you. For anyone in here this morning who does not know Christ, I pray that uh, they would feel suaded to make that decision. Uh, and we'll talk to somebody here about that. Help us to leave here, uh, sort of exiting the Thanksgiving week and entering into a time of Advent and celebrating Christmas. Help us to be billboards of this message that life is not about stuff it's about serving jesus christ alone we need your grace to do that well and we pray it in jesus name amen amen god bless you